Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus sends seven letters to seven churches in seven cities in a little area of Asia Minor. And I was thinking if he chose to do that today and wrote to our area, we would expect him to probably write a letter to Cape and Paducah and Carbondale and Sykeston, Poplar Bluff. But we would be very surprised if he sent a letter to Blodgett or Cobden or Grassy or Olive Branch. Well, Jesus surprised them in the first century as well because while he's writing letters to well-established metropolises like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, he includes a letter to Thyatira in chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. Now, Thyatira was the most insignificant city. It was just a little town. What's interesting is he sends the longest letter to the smallest town. Now, Thyatira was about 20 miles southeast of Pergamum. It was a sentinel city. You didn't get more insignificant than that. They existed for one purpose... And that was if an army came against Pergamum, they would come first to Thyatira. Thyatira's job was not to stop the army. They simply slowed it down so that Pergamum knew the army was coming and could prepare themselves. That was their role. So they were like a battle alarm for Pergamum. They got knocked down, rebuilt, knocked down, rebuilt. They were a speed bump for an army coming to Pergamum. Very insignificant little town. Something interesting happened. They, they found that a plant grew around Thyatira that had purple roots. And they were able to extract the purple out of the roots and make purple fabric, the most expensive color of that day. You remember when Paul came to Philippi in Acts chapter 16, he went down to the riverbank and there was a ladies' prayer meeting there and he shared the gospel with them. You remember who the first convert was? A lady named Lydia from Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. So this little sentinel town began to manufacture things, and pretty soon they had laborers there. They had weavers and tanners and dyers, and pretty soon they developed uh, labor unions. And in that day, labor unions were associated with pagan worship. They tied them in with pagan rituals, and they would have parties and orgies with the workers. And so they were not just professional organizations to help you have better pay, they were social organizations to help you play. And that created a serious challenge for the Christian because if he joined the labor union, he had to figure out how to keep himself away from the idolatry and the immorality that was associated with them. Now, the particular kind of idolatry that happened in Thyatira was the worship of Apollo. Apollo was the son of Zeus. Hang on to that thought. 
So Thyatira was a small, blue-collar town entrenched in idolatry. And a church grew up there. How it started, we're not told. We can guess that Lydia and her family came back to Thyatira and helped start this church that was there. You say, well, why would Jesus write a letter to a little church in an insignificant town like Thyatira? Let me give you two reasons. Number one, because every church matters. Every church matters to Jesus Christ. In fact, did you know that 80% of the churches in the world are small? 80% of the churches in the world are less than 200 people. Over half the churches in the United States are less than 100 adults. There are no insignificant churches to Jesus. There are no speed bump churches to Jesus. And then a second reason. Because this church had a problem that needed to be dealt with. And it was a problem that was not isolated to them. And here was their problem in a nutshell. They were tolerant of false teaching and sin. They failed to confront error doctrinally and morally in their church. And I think this is an important letter for us today. Because as I look across our country today, I think this is an epidemic problem. Now, in each one of these letters, Jesus introduces himself by describing himself with unique characteristics. And this letter is no different. He gives us the designation in verse 18. And notice what he says. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know. Now Jesus describes himself using three expressions. The first, he calls himself the Son of God. Now, most of these designations come directly from John's description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. But in this case, Jesus modifies the description. Because John describes him in chapter 1 and verse 13 as being like a son of man. And Jesus modifies that and says, I am the son of God. The emphasis on the title Son of Man is his humanity. The emphasis on the title Son of God is his deity. And to this church in a city devoted to the son of Zeus, Jesus says, I'm the Son of God. And then he describes himself a second way. He says, I am he who has eyes like a flame of fire. I can't think of anything more essential on one hand and more frightening on the other hand than fire. Everything melts before fire. Everything yields. Everything is consumed. Nothing hides. It penetrates everything. And Jesus says his eyes 
are like that. They pierce through all of your masks. They search the remotest recesses of your heart. They behold the most hidden things in your soul. And there is no escape from Jesus' eyes. Early in the book of Genesis, Hagar became pregnant with Abraham's child and Sarah got upset and so Hagar fled into the wilderness and hid herself. Thought she was well hidden. And God showed up, spoke to her and told her to go back home. And she said this in Genesis 16, 13. You are God who sees. In John's Gospel, We're told that Jesus needed no one to tell him what was in the heart of men. Why not? Because he sees. The first prayer recorded in the book of Acts begins this way. Acts 1.24 You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men. I think if we started our prayers that way, we would be a lot more honest with the Lord. You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men. That phrase, knows the hearts, is one Greek word. It's the Greek word cardiognosis. Gnosis to know, cardio, heart. And so literally, they are referring to Jesus as the heart knower. The heart knower. And here he's saying, the heart knower with eyes like flames of fire, says to this church, I know. And then thirdly, he describes himself as the one who has feet like burnished bronze. Bronze in Scripture is always a symbol of judgment. When Moses put the serpent on the pole in the wilderness, it was bronze, it was brass because it was a picture of Jesus bearing the judgment for our sins. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When a person brought their sacrifice to the temple, they placed the animal on the brazen altar. The place where that animal was judged in their place was bronze. And Jesus' feet are bronze because his feet are associated with judgment. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, it says that Jesus is treading the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. So when Jesus says, my feet are bronze, he's reminding this church that he is the universal judge. Now, a lot of us like to picture God as being all upset and Jesus being very friendly with us. Jesus reminds us here that he's the judge. Listen to what he said in John 5, 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Now, judgment has been watered down in our society. In fact, I'm not real confident in the our judgment, our justice system today even. When man judges, it seems to be a little sketchy. 
it's always circumstantial evidence and reasonable doubt and he said, she said, and that's not admissible in a court of law. But when Jesus judges, everything comes to light. Nothing is hidden. There are no questions. There are no doubts. There's no shredding documents. There's no destroying the server. There's no contaminating the crime scene. He sees all. He knows all. So Jesus describes himself to this church and to us this morning. And he says, I'm not coming as the Son of Man. I'm coming as the Son of God. I'm not coming as your sympathetic high priest. I'm coming as your judge. And I'm not going to look the other way. I'm going to see and know all. But before he bangs his judge's gavel, he first has some positive news for them. And that's point two, the commendation. We see it in verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Christ is going to say some very harsh things to this church. But he starts out by affirming their positive characteristics. And I think there's a great principle for us. Before you confront the negative in another person, you need to encourage the positive. Before you say a word of correction, you need to say a word of encouragement. Next time you want to tell me you're wrong, you should come up and say, you're younger than you look on the platform. I think your hair is growing back. Is it that Helsinki formula? Say something positive and then, you see, that's what Jesus does here. He says, here's the positive, but. And what's the positive? He has several things to say. He says, I know your deeds. These people were working for God. They were busy. They were active. It was commendable. They weren't just talking about following the Lord. They were walking it out in deeds of righteousness. He says, I know your love. Interestingly enough, this is the only church of the seven that gets commended for their love. They were caring, concerned, giving, warm, unselfish, forgiving, then he goes on and says, I know your faith. They believed God. They trusted God. And again, they weren't just talking about it because Jesus says, I know your faith. It's real. It's evident. And then he points out their service. They were actively serving the Lord. And this is a fruit of love. And then he says, your perseverance. That is patience. They were enduring. They were standing fast. And perseverance is a fruit of faith. And then he sums it up this way. He says, your deeds are greater now than they were at the beginning. They didn't start out fast and fade. They were going stronger now than they were at the beginning. This is quite a commendation. 
You've got love, faith, you're serving, you're persevering, you're accelerating in good deeds. I've got so many good things to say about you. But, and here comes the condemnation in verse 20. And I want you to notice it with me. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, what was their problem? They were tolerating false teaching. They were tolerating immorality. And they were tolerating idolatry. Now, I just imagine if someone went to this church and asked them why they were doing this, they would probably say something like this. Well, we don't want to judge anybody. You know, these people are really nice. they got some problems, but they're really nice, and we just want to love everyone. Have you heard that one lately? And usually when someone says that, they bring Jesus along as a witness because they say, well, Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. Well, I want you to pay attention to this passage because these people are saying this, and what does Jesus say about it? He says, I have this against you. You are tolerant of all this stuff, and I have this against you. Jesus is not saying, judge not in every case. Because where Jesus has judged something, we need to stand behind his judgment. Now, I want to slow down for a moment. And I want to focus on this because as I look at our society today, tolerance has somehow become the highest virtue. Tolerance today is kind of like the dipstick of love. So you got love? Let me check. How tolerant are you? And the more tolerant you are, the more loving you are. That's what our society is telling us. Now, I just want to poke two holes in that. Number one, In order for you to be tolerant, you must reject truth. D.A. Carson, in his book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, which I would suggest you get and read, points out that the definition of tolerance has changed. Tolerance used to mean this. I accept your right to have a different view, but I think you're wrong. You have the right to think whatever you want to think. I'm not going to stone you for that. But I believe you're wrong. That's what it used to mean. In today's vocabulary, tolerance now means this. I accept your view, and you're just as right as I am. Because all views are equally true. 
So tolerance is not I accept your right to have a different opinion than me. It's to say I embrace your opinion because everybody's opinion is equally valuable. That's the definition of tolerance today. You see, tolerance is based in a worldview that says there is no absolute truth. Let me illustrate it this way. If I go to my bank and I say, I'm planning a vacation trip. My wife and I are going to go around the world. And uh, we don't really have any plans, so I want to withdraw $100,000 for pocket money. And we're just going to head out. The teller would politely say to me, Mr. Green, you don't have that kind of money. And I might think, you're not being very tolerant. I happen to be independently wealthy. And he'll say to me, well, if you are, you don't have your money here. Because let me show you the books. Read it and weep. Banks are not tolerant. You know why? Because they base things on absolute truth. You have one amount of money in the bank, and that's it. It's not going to change. I'll give you another illustration. Let's say some of you go as a group to a winery. You have a wine tasting. They give you, what, five, six different kinds to try. Everyone will likely have a favorite blend. Someone will like white, someone will like red. You'll have all the preferences there. You see, at a winery, there's no right and wrong. Wineries are very tolerant. That's why they have all the choices. I want to suggest to you that in our society, truth has become more like wine tasting than banking. Morality has become more like wine tasting than banking. Oh, I, I like that. I think I'll take one of these and one of those and one of those. If you're going to make tolerance your highest virtue, you must reject absolute truth. Let's say a second thing. If you're going to be tolerant, you have to reject love. You say, wait a minute, I, I thought tolerance was the most loving thing I could do. No. See, tolerance says you can do whatever you want. It doesn't bother me. It's your business. It's your life. Why would I say that to someone? Because I don't care. You can live your life any way you want to. It's your business. See, that is the opposite of love because I'm basically saying I could care less what you do with your life. Love, on the other hand, says what you're doing is wrong because it's dangerous and it's 
damning and, and it's destructive. And love is willing to stand in someone's way and say, I want to confront you. Because why? I love you. And I don't want to see you destroy your life. If you're the parent of a little child and your child runs out in the road, or you walk in the garage and he or she is drinking antifreeze, are you tolerant at that point? Say, well, isn't that cute? No, you're going to run out in the road and get them. You're going to pull the antifreeze away and probably take them to the emergency room. Why? Because you love them. See, sometimes the most loving thing to be is intolerant. The church in Thyatira was tolerant. Specifically, it tells us they were tolerating the woman Jezebel. Now, you can read commentaries and they'll tell you who Jezebel is. I don't think it's that complicated. I think Jezebel was a lady in the church at Thyatira. But I don't think her name was Jezebel because I can't imagine a parent naming their baby girl Jezebel. She's so cute. What's her name? Jezebel. Parents didn't name their sons Judas. They didn't name their daughters Jezebel. The idea is she's a Jezebel type of woman. And what was Jezebel like? Well, 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 31 tells us that she was a pagan. She was a daughter of the king of Sidon. She worshipped Baal. And Ahab, the king of Israel, disobeyed God and married her. And she introduced Baal worship into Israel. And later in 2 Kings 9.22, we're told that she introduced harlotry and witchcraft into Israel. When you read the Old Testament, Ahab and Jezebel were like the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. Everything wicked, everything wrong, everybody they could uh, kill or use and take from, they would do it. And Jezebel was the real instigator of the couple. Listen to this verse, 1 Kings 21, 25. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. She influenced him to do what he did. And Jesus says there was a woman like that in Thyatira. She called herself a prophetess. Jesus doesn't call her that. She claimed to be a prophetess. She claimed to be getting revelation from God. She was teaching the bondservants of Jesus and leading them astray, leading them into immorality and idolatry. Well, let me make an application here. Two things. Number one, you are susceptible. If you're a Christian here, you're susceptible. Christ's bondservants can be led into false teaching. They can be led into immorality. That was true in the church at Thyatira, and it's true today. 
And if you're sitting here today saying, I'm not susceptible, you're probably the most susceptible. Secondly, you're accountable. What I find interesting here is that Jesus doesn't say one word to Jezebel. He talks about her, but he addresses the church and how they are following her and not dealing with her sin. We are accountable for that. It's not just my personal life that I'm accountable for. It's because I love my brothers and sisters that I'm accountable for you as well. What should they have done with Jezebel? You know, it's interesting to me that the first instruction Jesus ever gave to the church is in Matthew chapter 18. And what is the instruction? How to deal with sin in the lives of your brothers and sisters. Why is that the first thing? Because it's the hardest one to do, and I think it's the most essential one for us individually and collectively as a church. You see, they should have done what Paul told the Corinthians to do in 1 Corinthians 5. There it says, a man was living with his father's wife. In fact, it says it was so bad the Gentiles wouldn't even do that. He was living with his father's wife and making the world blush. And verse 2 says, and you're puffed up. They had this guy living with his father's wife in their church, and they were proud about it. Why? Because they were saying, look how tolerant we are. Look how loving we are. And what does Paul say to do? Verse 5, he says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. You need to discipline that individual lovingly to bring them to the Lord. You see, the church at Thyatira didn't act that way. They didn't do anything. And so Jesus steps in and he's going to do something. And that's the fourth point, the exhortation. He directs his exhortation at three groups. Her followers all the churches, and those are the rest in Thyatira. First, her followers. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Now, would you underline the word, words, she does not want to repent? Our society says tolerance is the highest virtue. What does tolerance say? You're okay. I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay. What's Jesus' highest virtue? Repentance. And what does repentance say? You're not okay. You need to change. You need to stop. You need to turn around. Tolerance says you're okay. Jesus says... Repent. And then I want you to notice something else here. Jezebel didn't need more information. She didn't need more time. Her problem was she didn't want to repent. And if you're sitting here today and you're holding on to sin or false teaching, 
Your problem is that you, not that you need another Bible study. Your problem is not that you need more time to think about it. Your problem is that you don't want to repent. See, repentance is never an intellectual problem. It's always a spiritual problem. It's not a mental problem. It's a moral problem. It's not a problem with your mind. It's a problem with your will. And you're saying, I don't want to let go of my sin, let go of my false way of thinking. This lady didn't want to repent because she loved her sin. Jesus says that about us all in John 3. It says our preference is to love the darkness rather than the light. St. Francis Medical Center has an ad campaign. You see it on the billboards. You see it on TV commercials. And they'll have a doctor who comes on and says, I hate cancer. I heard that the other day and thought, that's not very tolerant. It's not very tolerant. But we like that, right? Would you want to go to a hospital that says we tolerate cancer? The church is a spiritual hospital. Jesus made that analogy. He says, a person who doesn't think they're sick won't go to the doctor. I have to realize that I'm sick spiritually in order to come to Jesus, the doctor, who brings me to repentance. In that analogy, Jezebel is standing up in the spiritual hospital in Thyatira, and she's saying, I like cancer. It's fun. Try it. You'll love being sick. And because no one was responding to her the proper way, Jesus steps in and says he's going to. Look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her on a bed. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Here's a play on words. She's into immorality. She likes beds. Jesus says, I'm going to throw her into a bed. A bed of tribulation. And along with her, all those who are following her. Unless you repent. And then verse 23 spells it out. Jesus says, and I will kill her children with pestilence. And that word pestilence means death. So Jesus is saying, I will kill them with death. Who? Her children. Jezebel is fertile. She has lots of spiritual children. And Jesus says, I'm going to kill her, and I'm going to kill her children. That's pretty strong language. When you go back to the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament, she has probably the most graphic death in the Bible. The Bible spells it out. It says she was thrown from a window, landed in the road, run over by a chariot, and eaten by dogs. 
and the dogs didn't eat everything. The Bible goes on to tell us her skull, her feet, and her hands were left over. And they were used as fertilizer in the field of Jezreel. Why is it so graphic? Jesus is letting us know that he doesn't tolerate sin. Jezebel died. She had the 850 prophets of Baal. What happened to them? Elijah killed them all. He's not messing around with this. So he says to her followers, if you're in that category, there's still time to repent. So repent. And then he addresses the churches. And and to the churches, he says this in the rest of verse 23. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. I'm going to kill her and her children, and I want this to be a deterrent to the churches so that you don't do the same thing. I hear people say all the time that capital punishment is not a a deterrent to crime. Well, Jesus says it is. Jesus says it is. And he's saying when we see this happen in someone else's life, we need to see it and pay attention to it and change. I have a brother two years older than me. When Jack got a spanking, I paid attention because I knew mom was serious at this point in time and I need to notice what she tolerates and what she doesn't. That's what this passage is saying. When you see God turn the light on someone else's life and deal with them, you need to pay attention to that and sober up. There have been times when public preachers fall because of sin or false teaching. A lot of people like to laugh about that. I take it very seriously because it's a reminder to me that I'm susceptible to. And that one day I will stand under the light of those flaming eyes as well and give an account. It's a deterrent to the churches. And then thirdly, he dresses the rest in Thyatira in verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Everyone in Thyatira was not involved with Jezebel. Everyone was not following her teaching. Everyone didn't know the deep things of Satan. Now, that's an interesting phrase. You say, what are the deep things of Satan? Well, I don't know exactly, but I'll tell you this. Anything that leads to immorality and idolatry is the deep things of Satan. Because that's the outcome of this. In fact, I'll simplify it. I think the deepest thing, the deepest message that Satan has to tell us today is that wrong is right. 
If he can convince us that things that are wrong are actually right, we are connecting with Satan on the deepest level. When you find yourself saying, that's not so wrong, that's not so bad, when God says it is, you're on a path to destruction. And I might say this too, to get into the deep things of Satan, you don't have to get into the occult. You can go to church today and get into the deep things of Satan because there are pastors preaching that what God says is wrong is actually right. And that's the deep things of Satan. So he says, I have placed no other burden on you. In other words, stay away from that teaching. And then he spins it in a positive way in verse 25 when he says, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Stiff arm the teaching of Jezebel and embrace the truth. Embrace the teaching of Jesus Christ. So there's Christ's exhortation. To her followers, repent. To all the churches, take note and stay away. And to the rest, hold on to the truth. And then he closes this passage with the motivation in verses 26 to 29. And he gives two incentives to the overcomer. He does this in every letter. Two incentives to the overcomer. Here they are. Number one, if you overcome, you will rule the earth with the Lord. You ready for this? Look at this verse. Verse 26 and 27. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father. Jesus says, as I received authority from my Father, I give authority to you to do what? Rule the nations. You say, I'm not even a foreman at my job. I'm going to rule the nations? That's what Jesus says. How much authority does he have? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, and I give that authority to you to rule. When you get home this afternoon, read Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision similar to the one John has in Revelation. And he says, I saw the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days being God the Father. And he gave him dominion and authority and a kingdom to rule over all the nations of the world. And Daniel's scratching his head saying, what does this vision mean? And an angel comes and explains it to him. And when you get home, I want you to read this verse, Daniel 7, 27. Because there it says, all dominion and all authority for all the nations is given to, and you expect him to say the Son of Man, but he doesn't say that. He says to the people of the saints of the highest one. Who's that? That's us. That's incredible. We're going to reign with Christ. That's his promise here. While you're reading Daniel 7, read Ephesians chapter 1 at the end of that chapter. 
Because there it says the same thing about Jesus, that all things are going to be put under his feet. He's going to reign over everything, all the nations. You know what it says next? It says, we are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is going to reign over the nations, and we are with him in that. We are his body. What a promise. If you overcome, Jesus promises that he will give you his authority. And then the second promise is even better than that. Because he says in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. You say, what's the morning star? Listen to this verse. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. Jesus says, I am the morning star. So Jesus is saying to you that he's going to give you himself in a way more intimate than, you've got him now, but in a way more intimate than that, he is going to give you himself. What a promise. When you overcome, Jesus says, I'm going to give you my authority, but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to give you myself, the morning star. And then he closes with this exhortation in verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's not a letter just written in 95 AD to a bunch of people then. It's written to you today. If you have an ear to hear, Jesus is speaking to you today. And what's he saying? He's telling you to let Jesus judge you today rather than someday down the road. Let his eyes that are like a flame of fire penetrate your soul today and be honest with him. And in that context, repent. In that context, allow yourself and others to practice loving discipline to bring us back into line. And hold fast to the truth. And Jesus says, when you do that, I'll give you my authority and I'll give you myself. This is a heavy letter. I'm thankful we're going to close with communion. Because communion reminds us that Jesus took the judgment that you and I deserve. Those feet of bronze were nailed to the cross at Calvary to pay your debt. He became the bronze serpent on the pole. He took your place on the cross to forgive you and bring you into a relationship with him as God's children. And what he asks of you today, if you're hanging on to sin in the remotest part of your heart, to let his eyes see that. Their problem was adultery and idolatry. Both happened behind closed doors. Jesus' eyes see through the bedroom door into adultery. They see through the temple door into idolatry. He sees it in your heart. My challenge today is to not turn the other way, not wink at it, but bring it honestly before him and repent. And then go out of here a different person, a changed person from the way you came in. The Bible says examine yourself and eat.
Let's examine ourselves today. Before the one who sees everything anyway. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you that though you are the God who sees all and knows all and you know all our sin and it's offensive to you, you were willing to take it all on yourself and die in our place. And Lord, as we take the bread and the cup, I pray that you would just break our hearts today to see what it costs you to forgive us. And then, Lord, I pray that you would shine your light in our heart where we may be holding on to things that we don't want to repent of. That, Lord, today we would let go and let you control us and fill us and experience that your will is good and acceptable and perfect for our lives. And we pray this, giving you all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.